Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad that we're going to have a little guide talk today. We are are back, and we've got Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Dr. Peter Kapsner as the power panel today. I have no idea if 007 is showing up, but we are not uh, really to know or not to know. That's just the way it is. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, Bill. Hi, everybody in Radio Land. Radio Land. Where did you come from, Tom Brock? I came from TV Land. <laughs> I have nothing to and say. Bill, why, why would we expect anything different from 007 at the start of a new year? That, I mean, you'd totally. think that guy would make a resolution of some kind, but don't no different. We have no idea where his whereabouts are right now. Yeah, that's so true. So I was looking on on the internet today, and I saw some words that have been taken off out of the dictionary, and one was frigorific. Whoa. Frigorific. The word was used to describe something that causes cold or is chilling. Today we still have frigid, but the older cousin is no longer commonly used. And today is frigorific. Absolutely. Wow. It is so cold out. Yeah. It is. How cold is it, Bill? Well, it's going to be 21 <laughs> below when we wake up tomorrow in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Well, that wasn't a Johnny Carson answer. I know it wasn't. I know it wasn't. <laughs> it's so cold. Yeah. I don't know any of those jokes. But frigorific. I, I like that word. Yeah, that's it's a kinda, good word. It's got a happy spin to it. It does. Yeah. yeah. So we want you to send your questions over. Let me know what they might be. 877-933-2484. What was that, Bill? Uh, which is, I haven't said it in a couple of weeks. So there we go. 877-933-2484 is the number uh, to text over. Let us know what questions you have for the power panel. We would love to hear from you. Um, Gentlemen, I just wanted to say a Happy New Year, of course. Happy New Year. This is the New first Year's time well, we've Bill. gathered since. All yeah. of you guys. And I don't know if you're a resolution person. I am not. But uh, you guys have any nope. habits mm-hmm. you're trying to improve upon? Or I don't need like any that? more guilds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's move on. Let's go to the first question. I have gone to church all my life. Someone recently asked me if I knew Jesus. Help me understand what they are asking. I go to church. Isn't that enough? Interesting question to start the year. Who mm. wants to go first? Tom Parrish, you it's go a, first. It's a great question because I think it is the basic misunderstanding of the church. We are not. A, we don't go to church to just gain knowledge about the Bible or knowledge about Jesus, as though we're gaining knowledge about Plato or somebody else. We're going there to build a relationship. And uh, I was. We were talking in the green room before we started about John seventeen three, where Jesus says, "This is eternal life that they know you." the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So it's the relationship we're after. So knowing, I would say to this listener, knowing is building that relationship with Jesus to where when you're out of church and you're out of the presence of other Christians, you're still talking to Jesus in your heart. You're still listening to him. You're still letting him guide you. And his values become your values, and his ways become your ways. And I find if I can get people to that point, if I can do that, if I consistently do that, uh, I have a much healthier life and a much better perspective on people, life, and all that's going on. Because he's real. 
So how do you know if you know Jesus personally? And I think, I mean, I can remember a, a woman in my church who said to me, she has never heard her mom and dad pray. And her mom and dad were in my church every week. And I, I, don't, I, I don't doubt that there are people that go to church regularly and it's a cultural thing. They were raised like this. It's kind of like being an American. So they go to church. But I, I think the, the, if somebody says, do you know Jesus? I, I think you know Jesus if you pray to him, you trust him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that means you're hearing voices from heaven uh, or things like that. But I think if the person who called in, they trust in Christ, they pray. They believe uh, in him. They believe yeah. in him. Mm-hmm. Then they know him. That's what it means to know. Now, and, you know, the whole thing about knowing Jesus personally, you know, the word personally is nowhere in the New Testament. <laughs> you have to know Jesus. And, and, and Paul says, you know, I, uh, my, his goal is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So to know Christ is to experience him through prayer, through Christian fellowship, through Bible reading. But if you're a person who never prays, I don't know how you can be saved and never pray. I think you can be saved and not witness as much as you should or give as much as you should. But can you be saved and never pray? I don't think so. Well, listen to what Jesus also said to his disciples. He said, you're truly my disciples if you do what I command you to do. Mm -hmm. We've kind of lost that in Protestantism because we are so anti-doing anything. It's all by grace through faith, which is true. Mm -hmm. But it is in that relationship that I want to honor Jesus, you know, and whether I'm not hearing a voice or anything like that. But I read in the Bible, he says, forgive your enemies. I want to do that for his sake. And when I have helped people in counseling, do it for the sake of Jesus. They can do it. It's when they try to do it out of their own emotion, they have such a hard time. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know for sure what's underneath the the question about I go to church, but do, do I know Jesus? I, but maybe a couple of things come to mind, or, or one specifically, I think about some longstanding relationships that I've had in my life, uh, one being my best buddy from uh, the past 25 years ago or so, and then my wife, Hallie, that we've been married just over 26 years. And and I when I look back 25, 26 years ago, uh, I can say that I knew them, um, but just like any kind of relationship, I think what's surprising is that as you, as you be, live further and deeper into that relationship, there are things about that relationship and about that person that surprise you, that that change your perspective and thinking about what you thought or, or kind of how you thought they might be. I mean, I know certainly uh, Hallie is in, in many ways still a, a mystery to me, and, and that's 26 years of life together, and uh, and new things surprise me about her, and, and assumptions that I've had about her need to be changed if I let them change according to what's actually in front of me and not, not what I think. And that's the same thing with my buddy Drew that, again, been doing life together for the better part of 25 years. And there's other things that just deepen and strengthen and stuff. So when I apply that idea to, to do you know Jesus, I think the invitation of our faith, right, to become a Christian is to say, I'm going to become a follower of Jesus. And that's going to assume a few different things. One, it assumes he's real. Two, it assumes that Jesus is accessible in, in certain ways, whether it's learning about him through scripture, whether it's in our prayer life, as you guys have mentioned together, whether it's through preaching or just any number of ways we get to know Jesus better. And so I I think maybe the way that I would answer the question is, are you getting to know Jesus more deeply as as the steps of the journey in your life unfold? Or is he the same sort of Jesus that you, when you first met, there is no actual growth in the relationship? Because what I would say that over now some 40 years of being a Christian, 
Uh, Jesus has deepened <clears throat> things about him that I assumed from 40 years ago. But Jesus is also, if you're willing to allow him, um, he surprises you with what his kingdom is actually like. And, and he's very different and in many ways an, a complete mystery in terms of who he is because, because the depths just can't be plumbed in, in that period of time. So it's a little bit of a longer answer, but it's, it's the thing that I'm thinking of is that if people ask me if I know Jesus, I would say this. <laughs> I think there's things that I know about him and his kingdom that have proven out over all of these years of being a believer. And there's many things about him that still surprise me as I continue to follow. And I think that's like any relationship, actually. It's a great answer. Yep, good. All good answers. Appreciate that. There's another question that just came in. I was thinking about the resurrected body of Jesus. We know it was physical after he rose. Is it still physical now? And will our new bodies be like his? Like, will we be able to suddenly appear in a room without using the door? It is. I'm going to suggest yes. I don't think we know for sure, right? But I'll suggest yes. I mean, the, the reconciliation that's coming is the healing of all things that are. So so everything that is physical in this world is still longing for its release. So sure. we don't move into some only spiritual realm. I think we're just going to see the great restoration and reconciliation of all things. And his body was the first—that was the first fruits of this whole thing. And it's interesting, the book of Acts, when Jesus ascends into heaven, the angels say to the people, you know, just so you saw him ascend, so you'll see him return. And he had a physical body at that point. Beyond that, we don't have anything in Scripture that I know of that tells us about Jesus right now, if there's a physical body or not, except that oftentimes uh, in Christianity we've heard that the only scars in heaven will be the scars on Jesus' hands. So I don't know exactly if that's accurate or not, but mm-hmm. I like it because he really took on humanity. And the chapter that talks about all this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, mm-hmm. where the Apostle Paul is talking about the nature of the resurrected body. And Paul says it's kind of like when, you're, when you are planted, when you're buried, it's sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body, mm-hmm. but it's still a body. Mm-hmm. And Jesus went to lengths to say, give me some fish to eat, a, a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see, that I have. And uh, so it was a physical body. Now, Paul also says flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. So some of this is a bit of a mystery, but we do not want to believe, like some heretics in the church, that Jesus spiritually rose from the dead, but he didn't really physically rise from the dead. I don't think you can deny the resurrection of Christ to be a Christian. No, well, look at Thomas in the upper room. You know, I need to see it. Yeah. And then Jesus appears to him a week later and says, hey, touch put your hand see. here on my side. Yep. You know, touch me and see that it's yep. me. So I, I mean, there is something really there. So I think what I've been teaching, I hope I'm right, but this is out of 1 Corinthians 15. Um, Christ ra- rose from the dead. His body was different because he could zoom in and out of rooms without opening the doors. But it was still the body in that he right. had the, 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 the nail prints. And I think our resurrection will be like his. We'll still have some kind of body, but it'll be a spiritual body. And my guess is it'll have some connection to our old body. Now, what that is, who knows? But I don't think I'll necessarily look like I do. But, you know, some of this is a mystery, but First Corinthians 15, wouldn't that be heaven? Yeah, we're wouldn't that be not. heaven? We're, but, not, we're not trying to laugh right now. We really aren't. But read First Corinthians 15. That's, that's a good chapter for this. Yeah. Good All right. Word. Yeah, I like that. All right, let's take a little break. You are listening to Guy Talk. We're back in 2022. Let me know what your questions are. 877 933 
888-900-2484. we got some great questions coming in, so thank you so much. Again, 877-933-2484. I'll be right back with my power panel. talk let me know what your questions are for the fine gents sitting here in the studio 877-933-2484 here's a question for bill and the guys i understand that the earth is corrupted by sin and needs to be remade by god do we know why a new heaven is needed will be a new heaven a new earth is it because the new heaven is coming down to earth well, all things will melt with intense heat, First Peter, what, 3? Uh, and then comes, according to First Peter, I think, the new heavens and the new earth, which I think is just a, a phrase for everything will be new. Yeah. And so I wouldn't get too stuck on why does the earth need to be re- uh, renovated but not the, the heavens? Because uh, I think, you know, the stars are going to fall and, and uh, everything will be redone. And I think the big question is, will this earth be here at all? I've always been of the opinion that this earth totally melts and is gone, and we get the new heavens and new earth. But there are some Christians who are of the opinion that this earth will be, you know, torched, but it'll still remain and be redone, this very earth. That's not what I have believed, but uh, it's not a big deal what you believe on that, but there are two opinions. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not going to argue on that. I mean, you pretty much hit the nail on the head. I always was under this understanding scripturally that the Lord wants to return to literally what paradise was in the beginning, and that the whole new heaven and new earth is a whole restoration of the entire cosmos, because that's what John 3.16 says. For Jesus, you know, for God so loved the world, and that word world means cosmos. So everything is recreated according to the perfection that the Lord desires. Yeah, I don't really have too much to add to that at all, other than I think what Brock was saying, too. I think there's a sense in which earth and heaven are becoming one again. And so when we pray the Lord's Prayer about your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the the idea that the heavens are a realm that are all around us, they're just not uh, daily accessible to us, that that's going to end when Jesus returns and brings the two back together into one. What that means for the current form of heaven, I don't know for sure. It's a, It's a really good question, but I think somewhere in there lies the answer of earth and heaven becoming one again. Nicely nicely done, gentlemen. All right, here's another question. Uh, this one is a little bit on the pastoral counseling side. My in-laws have tried to break apart our relationship numerous times because I will not let them take our kids one weekend per month. I think it's not normal, and they want to control our family. They are huge church people. How do you deal with people like this? I think one of the first things I'd recommend is that you really need to have a conversation with them to understand what they're thinking. And you have to also look at your heart and determine what you're thinking. It sounds like there are a lot of assumptions being made here about what they're going to do with the kids and what you perceive they're going to do with the kids. And it may or may not be that at all. 
I know, I'm not sure, but I think a conversation has to take place and an openness. And I'll tell you, honestly, Bill, if I can get people to even pray together, it's not easy, but it's a powerful thing. And the question that comes to my mind, and maybe he's done this, but if he hasn't, to ask the question, did your parents take your children once a week, once a month? And maybe they did, and that's why they're assuming, well, if, if my mom and dad did it, why can't I do it? But if they never did it, this does sound like a bit of a controlling thing to me. Who Do you give your kids to the grandparents every four weeks? I, that seems a little much to me. I mean, if it, for the whole weekend, I mean, once every four weeks to see them, sure, you know, but I don't know. So we take our grandkids for the, you know, whole week in the summer or two weeks in the summer. Yeah, but you're controlling, Tom. I think you. <laughs> well, that makes it a lot easier. Yeah. I, now, I, I can't. No, I'm not going to go there, and I'll tell you why. I don't really know the motivation of people. I mm-hmm. need to find out their motivation. What are they really trying to do? You know, uh, is are the grandparents trying to control something? Or do the parent, grandparents have a push from the Lord inside that they need to have more, more time with their grandkids because they can't get that under the current circumstances? Mm-hmm. If you find that out, then you've got a much better way to go. I don't if, know. If indeed they're trying to break up his marriage over this, something's wrong. Well, he, how did he say that again, Bill? Are they actively trying to break it up, or does he perceive that it's, it's hurting his marriage? Well, i got to go find the question now. Okay. It's here somewhere. At the beginning, it said they're trying to break up our relationship. Yeah, my in-laws, and of course, I don't know if this is a man or a woman speaking. Yeah. My in-laws have tried to break apart our relationship numerous times because I will not let them take our kids one weekend per month. I think it's not normal and that they want to control our family. They're huge church people. How do we deal with people like this? Well, I'd want to define what huge church people mean. I mean, that's an important thing right there. I've been doing this too long, you know, and and, and in this one, in deep respect to the, the person saying this, I need to hear the whole story because yeah. we're not getting the whole story here. Sure. And there's something more going on. Sure. But I think the basic thing is pray about it, listen to the Lord, listen to the scriptures, and don't be afraid to ask your in-laws some hard questions. Mm-hmm. Peter, were you going to say something, or should I move on? Yeah, no, no, agreed. I think you guys hit on it really well. I think there's obviously an issue here, and I, I think that issue is real. I think it's a tricky thing to try to address uh, in a one-way conversation on air like this, because usually there's so many different dimensions, both known and unknown, uh, in these situations. But I think the questions are, are really good questions, for it, sure. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. Peter and Tom are so wise. <laughs> no, honestly. <laughs> I mean, we hear this, but of course, we don't really quite know what to say, because we don't know both sides of the story. So I'll, right. I'll, I'll talk for a while. You know what I think she should do? <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's an interesting question. Will the new Jerusalem be in the shape of a cube or a pyramid? I, I don't know how to address that one. I think that's coming from the, the text in Revelation about it being so many miles high, so many miles wide, yeah. so many miles whatever. According to that, would it be a cube if you take that literally? I don't know. That would yeah, require I think math. You know, in my yeah, head, that would. that's way too much. Which I could right? do. It just take me eleven days. Right. Well, and and I think uh, we have to be a little bit careful when we interpret Revelation because it was written in a certain kind of style that wasn't narrative style. And and what I mean by that is that when you read some of the stories of the Old Testament, for example, they're they're narratives. They're describing events as they actually happened. Whereas Revelation is not a narrative, it was a, it was a really common form of writing back in that day. It's it's very uncommon to us, but it was called apocalyptic writing. And so when somebody chooses to write in apocalyptic kind of language, when you're both the writer and the reader, 
you have a common understanding that this is going to be a lot of symbolism that's going on uh, in this. And that symbolism for them would have been much easier than it is for us to interpret because it was, there are some 300 apocalypses written in the days of John and John's was the only one that made its way into scripture. But I think we just have to be careful when we read Revelation to take it to just be able to discern when are these literal things that are going on and when is it more symbolic, but we certainly can't read it like narrative as if we're reading the story of Abraham heading to the promised land or something with Joshua or something with David and Goliath. These actual events that happen, Revelation is not written in that form. It's the hardest book of the Bible to interpret. And I I just listened to it uh, recently and I'm laying there listening to Revelation and for a lot of it, I'm thinking, what on earth does this mean? And then I'll go co- uh, uh, check out the commentaries, after which I say to myself, what on earth what? does this mean? And so I think yeah. we we need to read Revelation, believe it, know that it's filled with symbolism. Who exactly is 144,000? Boy, you got different scholars on that one. And, you know, so it it's just, I think we need to read it and study it, but know that uh, we'll know when we know. Well, and I think also using the term symbolism, I know for some people it would be offensive. Well, you don't believe the Bible. You're saying it's symbolism. No, there are different genres in the Bible. There are different ways things are expressed. You know, Psalms is much different than the narratives of the New Testament, the Gospels. Revelation has its own style. And yet the, the interesting thing is, and it would take some time to look at this. It, I'm looking in Revelation 21 right now, verse 16. He measured the city with his rod, 12,000 strata. Uh, strata was an eighth of a mile under Roman you know, Roman rule. But this almost always fits in with the Old Testament of Israel, that they there were, you know, you had 40 days in the wilderness, we have 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus is 40 days uh, out in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. You have that over and over, you had 12 tribes, and now you have 12 apostles. Mm-hmm. So there's a combination of that symbolism that goes back and forth. And I remember one professor said to me, and, and it really hit me hard, he said, look, you need to understand that in the person of Jesus... You have the entire Old Testament reduced to one person who does perfectly what should have been done but was not. Mm-hmm. And that really hit me hard, and I respect that. And you reminded me of old pastor Maynard Force. Oh. Some of the people out there might—he was an old Lutheran pastor who he was just terrific. tremendous. But he said, when I come across a scripture that I don't understand, I look at it, I study it, and then I tip my hat to it, walk around it, and move on. And I do that fairly often. You know, you study it. Don't just, hey, I don't understand this next. You got to study it, look at it. Uh, But there are things in Scripture. I mean, Peter said there are things that Paul writes that are hard to understand. Yeah. And so we now we know in part, as Paul said. Hmm. We'll take a little break. We'll come back. Lots more guide talk. You have great questions. Keep them coming. 877-933-2484. The power panel today is pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Dr. Peter Capsner will be right back.
Back with Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Dr. Peter Kapsner is the distinguished power panel today. So let me know what questions you might have for them, 877-933-2484. First Corinthians 1, First uh, Corinthians eleven ten confuses me. It says, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. What do the angels have to do with the authority and is it referencing head coverings? I think it is referencing head coverings. And that verse talks about, I think, that angels attend our worship service. I think that's what that means, that a worship service is going on, so not to offend the angels, not to offend others. Women should have a covering over their head in that culture, which meant that she was um, subordinate to her husband and um, honoring God. And there are still some churches where women wear a, a veil or a hat into church to, to keep that up. You know, I'm not of the opinion, and I'm, I could be wrong, uh, that, that there are very few things that are culturally relative in the New Testament, and I think that might be one of them. I don't think you're sinning women if you don't wear a head covering, but you should submit to your husbands. Paul says that, and uh, there you go. You know, this is a tough one. I'm looking at it here in in the context. And, yeah, it's hard to understand that because we don't have any more information about it beyond this. And that's where we get into trouble with scriptures. We read these one verses, and we don't have other information that goes around it. And so we speculate. I really don't know what that fully means. I do know this, that for whatever reason, the church, even a lot of the Eastern church, gave up the head covering a long time ago. Now, some still do it, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But they didn't see it as a salvation issue or a faith issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish I had something to add on this one, but I, I really don't. There, the, it's a very confusing passage. I, I know there's a quite a bit going on in the Corinthian church where women were starting to think that they could transcend their own femininity and, and become like and, and unlike the angelic community. And there's just a lot going on in that passage. But it, it's something I would absolutely love to, to study. I know Paul's primary concern was the interdependence of the Corinthian community because they were constantly trying to divide from one another. So that whole chapter starts with this idea that there's this interdependence that God and Christ and man and women, and they come from one another and, and that they're supposed to be living in this community. And something about what some of the women were doing relative to their hair and their head was identifying with the angelic community. Beyond that, it's, it, it is a very confusing passage of scripture. All right, here's one we can all chew on. How about an easy one, Bill? Yeah, this will be a little bit easier. <laughs> okay, faith sometimes has an immediate positive outcome. For example, prayers get answered quickly and clearly. Mm-hmm. True? Mm-hmm. Sometimes. Okay, yeah, but that's sometimes. Then there's also times when there's a, a delayed outcome or possibly even a negative outcome. Yep. Um, Abel still got murdered. Abraham waited forever for a son, right? But we look at some of the lives of people in the in the Bible, and they were mocked and beaten and destitute and stoned, put in prison. And this doesn't really easily fit into the uh, narrative that we sometimes say today about 
all the wonderful things God wants to do yes. in your life. The Your Best Life Now by Joel Osteen. I wasn't and, going and, there, Tom Brock. Well, so. and that, no, that's exactly right. <laughs> I, send, and, I spent all this time to try to get this thing set up well, <laughs> and you have well, to go I'm and wreck it. I like what, I like what, what John MacArthur responded to Joel Osteen. Yeah. If this is your best life now, oh, brother, you know, right. our best life now is in the next life. In this life, we will have, you know, uh, what did Paul say? Uh, um those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I think the, it goes back to the definition of the word faith, and this is where we get in trouble. Too often we talk about faith as something we generate within ourselves in order to trust Jesus or to ask him for something in prayer or to get something. And that's a real wrong understanding. Faith is saying, Jesus, you know, my child is sick. Jesus, I need the money. Jesus. But the inlet is, no matter how you answer, I know you're going to do the right thing. And so I don't always see the answer according to what I want, but Jesus will give the answer according to what I need or what is best for the kingdom of God. So it's confidence. I always tell people, you cannot have faith in faith. You have to have faith in the person of Jesus Mm -hmm. and his shed blood. That's where the power is. Yeah, I think we've talked about this a lot over the the maybe a couple years we've been doing Guy Talk, right, guys? Just about Mm -hmm. how persecution is not necessarily a familiar word for us in in the current context in which we live. And I think often about something I learned while I was in school at some point, that uh, that when you say the word Christianity, there's not really a singular Christianity that exists. And so we were encouraged to talk about something called Christian, Christian patterns, meaning that Christianity expresses itself in different ways in different times in different cultures. And sometimes the way it expresses itself is is really consistent with what Jesus's kingdom is all about. And sometimes maybe it seems less so. And, and so I think this Western Christian, fairly wealthy, um, individualistic, I suppose, pattern that we live in right now in America, I think one thing it's helpful is to, is to sort of get outside that pattern if you can and be able to see the, see it for what it is, both the really good things that are part of it, but one of the things that's really not part of it is is a very robust or or expansive view of persecution and suffering yes. and what the invitations are relative to that. And that doesn't mean that we're going to welcome it, and it doesn't mean that we're excited about it. But the Bible, when when you allow it to be and allow it to inform the pattern of Christianity in which you live, it um, it it can really disrupt that pattern in some really important ways. And so. I, I'm not one who enjoys a, a trial of any kind, but I can't say, and I'm sure you guys feel the same way, I can't, and, and many of the people as part of the Faith Radio family will know of this too, that it's those trials, James is right, they they develop stuff in us, and there's character that happens, and an opportunity for the light to shine really brightly in the midst of those things, and, and God to be uncommonly near oftentimes in the midst of that, that, um, that, that teaches us he really is the only shepherd in this life. There's just, there's so much to be learned in that. And yet in our current Western Christian pattern, we have a very thin view of those things because we do think that God is here for our prosperity in a lot of different contexts and, and that the blessed life is one in which our relationships are good. Everybody's healthy. I have enough money, enough food on the table. I want those things, but the Bible never talks about that being the blessed life. The blessed mm-hmm. life in the New Testament is really different when Jesus mm-hmm. describes it. And it's you, in, go ahead. It's Tom. interesting, Peter, and I want to pick up on the persecution. I was born on a Sunday. My mom took me to church the following Sunday, and I've been there ever since. Here's the bottom line. I cannot remember any real sermons about Christian persecution yeah. for us. We may have heard about Christian persecution overseas, 
and occasionally that would come up and we'd raise money for it. But there was no real training on mm-hmm. what does it mean to live for Jesus in this culture and to be persecuted as a result. And it's a shame because we're not really expanding or teaching the full context of the Word of God, because that's a normal part of the Christian life. Jesus said, if you believe in me, expect to be persecuted. It's normal. And yet it's so abnormal today when I hear Christians say, well, I was trying to do what's right. Why didn't Jesus take care of that? Well, part of it is when you stand for Jesus, you're going to walk into difficult situations. And, you know, Peter, what you said at the beginning, how cultures ebb and flow. Some cultures are closer to Christ, and it's kind of easy to be a Christian, and other cultures will chop your head off if you're a Christian. Yeah. And I'm just thinking of, I was born in the 1950s. To be uh, homosexual behavior was illegal then. Today, in 20 of the 50 United States, it's illegal to try to help people away from homosexuality through therapy, through certain ser- therapies. In Canada, they have now just not only banned what they call conversion therapy, I, I believe also words that you speak that would try to oppress someone's uh, sexuality is is up for, uh, um, you know, a, a fine or a, an imprisonment or whatever. They're about to pass the same thing in France. They passed it in Germany. Just look in, within my lifetime. Homosexuality goes from being uh, uh, illegal and sinful to you better accept this or you're going to jail. That's and, and again, to have churches on the wrong side on that issue doesn't help. But just how different the world has become just in my lifetime, the United States. Yeah, I think you bring up such an important point, Tom, not just on that specific issue, but I think on a lot of different things we could fill in the blank with that. And and when you when again, just using that phrase Christian pattern, that we're, that we live in sort of this day of a Christian pattern, I would say that part of what is the reason for what you describe, but I think many things in terms of our, our various moral failings in the in the church and 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 what we see in some of these ways is there the pattern in which we find ourselves is usually characterized by what I would describe as a failure of theology that our, our Christianity ends with an idea that we get ourselves positioned for heaven and we don't really know the richness and the robustness of a of a life of ongoing transformation and change and growth and, and really growing in the authentic love of the kingdom number one. And the second thing is is that um, we just have so many churches that um, we, we've allowed business to infiltrate the kingdom of God. Yep. And and most Christian environments are actually businesses that are masquerading as kingdom places. And, and that might be a little overly harsh because I think the people involved really generally, genuinely want to be kingdom people. But the wineskin of expressing your Christianity within a business brings a ton of overlapping and competing pressures because those two things are, are at the end of the day, entirely incompatible. And, and so it's really hard to express Christianity and the way that it can be expressed when you have a lot of the business relationships going on. I, one quick example of that, I, I know when I was working in a very large church at one point that I got very close to the other nine people on the pastoral team of which I was a part and yet I also knew that one misstep for me some way, if I just disagreed with something organizationally, they had the power to fire me. There is nothing in Scripture that talks about the idea of Christianity or Christendom where people would have the power to fire one another or to be building brands or to try to be making income and all the stuff that goes with it. It's so insidious, you guys, this Christian pattern where we've allowed the business philosophies and principles into the kingdom. And it's it's a big part of the reason why I think we're struggling so much well, because we want to reach out to people, yeah. right? And then you just say, well, we can't. 
we can't be prophetic to the culture because then the culture is going to reject us and we'll lose our money. And so it's really tricky. I think we have sold our souls to the devil. I have said for 40 years, this tax exemption for the church is a mistake. Because what we do then is that we have to get, in order to get that tax exemption from the state, we have to comply with the state's laws. Where do we stand up and say these laws are wrong? This is not the Lord's will. And yet, historically, that's what Christians have done. And as a result, they've gotten in a lot of trouble, certainly. But I think those that are willing to stand up and and even lose that tax exemption have to stand for the Lord Jesus and the truth of his word, regardless of the outcome. And I pray there are more people that will do that. So followers of Jesus don't always see the results they long for in this life, but we are in a relationship with the living Mm -hmm. Father. Now, do we talk about this in a a this-is-a-reality sort of way? Anyway... That's a, <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a profound question. A, yeah, well, well I, I think, you know, yeah, just quickly on that, I think, Bill, but that, that ties in so nicely to what we're talking about is that it's one thing to be in a relationship with an organization. It's another thing for a group of people to be in a mutual relationship with one another and then together as a community in relationship with God. And, and so I think whatever the wineskin of Christianity looks like moving forward in our culture, I think we're seeing the end of these big business organizational Christianity things, and and we're moving into something very different that is really intriguing. But part of the underpinning of that is God is actually real, and and a, and a people can live and begin to shine with His light and and grow in those ways. It's it's horribly encouraging. I know the next generation that I'm with, week in and week out, when we talk about these things in this way their doubts and their skepticism and their, like, I'm done with Christianity, all that stuff, it begins to fade to the background, and they're like, I want to sign up for that deal. There, there's a whole new expression coming, and, and I'm really excited to see what happens. Mm. Great questions coming in. Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk will take your questions, 877-933-2484. Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastors Tom Brock and Tom Parrish are on my panel today. We'll be right back. panel is now down to Pastor Tom Brock and Tom Parrish, and Tom Brock stepped out to go to the men's room, so it's just Tom Parrish and I. I'm happy to be here, Bill. (laughs) All right, here's a question. I'm struggling with a workplace issue where a client I serve wants to be addressed or called by a different gender than the gender God gave them. How do I deal with this as a Bible-believing Christian? Well, it's always a risk. If you're going to stand really for the Word of God, it doesn't mean you need to be rude doesn't mean you need to hurt people's feelings. But what most Christians won't do, because they don't want to lose their job, and I understand that, but they, they won't say to this person, look, I, I love you, I respect what you asked me to say at this point, but that's not who you are. You were created this and this by the Lord Jesus. But I will, I will call you whatever you want to be called, but you must understand, that's not what I believe. Most of us won't do that, and as a result, we fit in with the culture and allow the culture to do this, and it's getting ridiculous. I mean, I ran into a person the other day, 
that had, I think they said 12 pronouns that identified themselves. It was just ridiculous to see. But it is that movement away from the truth. Well, was it talking about pronouns or just a different name? Because, I mean, you've been in the studio for an hour and I haven't used a pronoun for you. I can I, art, I can artfully dodge that all day long. You can. And it, a lot of, here's what's happening in that culture right now. The pronoun is becoming the symbol of who they are. Yeah. So they don't want to be called Tom or Bill anymore. They want the, the, the pronoun to do that. And the problem is that's not who they were created. And that's the tough thing. And that's the battle we're going to be up against is the church. All right. Um, here's a Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue depicting four kingdoms. The ten toes of clay mixed with iron. Could that allude to the transhuman elites believe, believe that they will transcend to merging man with computer? I'm guessing no. I'm guessing no, too. But uh, I No. No. No? If, if Here's part of it. You, we can't keep reading into Scripture what we are running into today when they were talking to a completely different situation. There are principles there about how to behave, how to respond to government, how to re- stand for the Lord. But whether that has anything to do with that, and, you know, think about it. When Daniel was written, now we're saying, what, you know, almost 3,000 years later that has to deal with computers? I just don't I, think so. I think th- that's the one that I don't think any of us can answer off the top of our head. So you take out a good commentary, look and see what do these scholars think the feet of clay are or the earth and clay, and then look at that, um, you know, because so much of this we just got to study. Well, you know, but the other thing is we read the scriptures and we want to believe it's speaking to us now. We don't want to read the scriptures and then somebody say, oh, by the way, Tom, that's for 3,000 years from now. Really has nothing to do with your situation. You say, well, that's strange. No, the Word of God speaks to people where they're at in their situation at that time and has that fall over into us as well for Mm -hmm. the principles that are learned there. All right, here's an interesting question. If I don't repent of a sin, but I do ask for forgiveness, am I forgiven? It's very hard. I don't know how you can ask for forgiveness and not be repentant at the same time. What drives you to repent? What drives you to ask forgiveness? Uh, you were asking forgiveness because you recognize you don't agree, you didn't agree with the Lord on this topic, or it was a problem, and now you need to change your thinking. So I, I don't want to get into the semantics again of whether you got to say, you know, I repent, and now I ask forgiveness. If you go to the Lord sincerely and say, forgive me, I was wrong, uh, I think that covers it. When, whenever, I mean, I, I'm thinking of a man that I talked to who uh, did pornography, repented, God, please forgive me. And, and then I said to him, well, you got rid of the pornography, didn't you? No, no, I keep it because it would be too expensive to keep getting rid of uh, That's part of the process of getting rid of it. That's a different you, thing. You have yeah. to, maybe your checkbook needs to feel some pain before you'll, but, you know, you can't, I, I think we all, I mean, when somebody asks, you know, if I commit the same sin over and over, will God forgive me? My answer is, I sure hope so, because who hasn't had that situation in their life? But if if you're sincere, you ask forgiveness, and you start fighting sure. your sin, your sins are forgiven. If it's an insincere, okay, Lord, I know it's wrong for me to sleep with my girlfriend, but you know me, Lord, I'm weak, and, and you made me this way anyway. So, you know, that's not repentance. I'm wondering if the question isn't like, Lord, I need to repent of this known sin I have, but also please forgive me of all other sins that I have not confessed. I'm wondering if that's not a piece of the question 
And if that is your heart, then, of course, God will forgive you of all your yeah. sins. Yeah. How much did the thief on the cross confess? Mm-hmm. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And it wasn't like Jesus went through a list with him. No. When you come honestly before Jesus and you are sorrowful and you ask forgiveness, even the past sins are dealt with. Even, I mean, when Christ died on the cross, he paid for all our sins, past, present, and future. The sins I haven't committed yet are already under the blood. And we don't, you know, First uh, John 1, 9, we need to confess our sins and receive forgiveness. But does it ever say you have to confess every sin you've ever committed to be saved? You can't. You don't know half of your sins. And our sin, our salvation is dependent on grace, Christ on the cross, period, not on whether I had enough time to confess all my sins before I died, because nobody's going to have enough time for that. Mm. I got a strange email, honestly, before Christmas from somebody back in my hometown. I didn't even recognize the name. And they said, yeah, I've heard you on the radio. And, you know, and I know you're from Perrysburg where I grew up. And uh, it said, yeah, and when you were a kid, you beat me up. And I can't even remember it happening. But the first thing I did was is I asked them for forgiveness I mean, I don't remember doing it, but that doesn't mean I didn't do it, uh-huh. you know. But it's those kind of things. How yeah. many things are like that in our life? We don't even remember. But they're still, they, they affected somebody else. Mm-hmm. But when you come before Jesus and lay it down, he cleanses you from that. They need to be cleansed of their anger. That's a different story at that point. Mm-hmm. I have a sister going through a divorce with her husband. They have two children. She has purchased a house and has moved in with her girlfriend. I've told my wife that I know I need to say something. How do I go about this with loving arms? Well, you're going to get my opinion on this, and then you'll get Tom's. <laughs> but anyway, and, and, where, and where's Peter when I need him? Is, is Peter around? No, he's okay. gone. He he's left. Gone. Well, you know, I'm kind of conservative on, the, on this. For and, and this person, you look at First Corinthians seven and read that on divorce, and then you read Matthew chapter eighteen. What I would say to a sister is, uh, in cases of uh, adultery, you can divorce your husband. And uh, some people believe 1 Corinthians 7 says, in case of abandonment by an unbeliever, then you can divorce. But as I, the way I read 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 18, if you get married to somebody else, Jesus says you're committing adultery. And if you marry someone who's divorced... You're committing adultery. So I guess what I would say to this sister is, you know, can we have a talk? And if she's open to having a talk, just show those scriptures to her. Say, all right, if you're going to divorce your husband, okay, but um, that means you're single until he dies because you're still one in the eyes of the Lord. That would be what I would have to say to to -hmm. someone that I love that is in that situation. Okay, here's my word. I agree. (laughs) Excuse me? I agree, because that's what you need to do. I'm coming, Elizabeth. Remember that? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Because there's, there's not, these are all, here's the problem. Emotions get way too deep in these situations. And, and logic gets thrown out the window, and the Word of God usually gets thrown out the window because, oh, he didn't love me, and it wasn't mm-hmm. what it was supposed to be, and now this woman, other woman loves me, or whatever it may be, whatever may come out of that. The point is, we've got to not simply operate by emotions. We have to operate by the truth. Now, is this sister a Christian? Oh, uh, that's and a big. So when right she there. moved in with her girlfriend, is that a lesbian thing? I don't know, but okay. it sounds suspicious to me. Yeah. Okay. All right, we have a minute left. Uh, Tom Parrish, would you pray for all the people who are uh, suffering today? Yep. Thank Glad you. to. Lord Jesus, there is great suffering 
around the world, but in our culture right here, Lord, there are people caught in darkness. There are people caught in all kinds of sins and addictions. There are people, Lord, that have said things they deeply regret, and there are people that are just fearful. Lord, Jesus, raise up men and women who will speak to them the truth in love. Touch their hearts. Give them that inner peace by knowing you. Because, Lord, not only are you the resurrection, the life, it is your blood that cleanses us, and we need to be cleansed. And so, Lord, let that happen to all of those folks and to us as well, because we all carry burdens, and you know exactly how to deal with them. So bring your healing power, Jesus, to your honor and glory, we ask this. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, uh, Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Dr. Peter Kapsner, if you're still listening, uh, a delight to be with you again. Thank you so much for your faithfulness to the show. Uh, I had a couple of listeners chime in and say it's so great to have you guys on the program every week, and I agree. So thank that's you, uh, all the guy Fun talk we here. have. For, yeah, thank you. All the guy talk we have for today. But next hour, uh, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston is going to come on, and he used to be on the Faith Radio Network. If you know Jeremiah and his work, he's brilliant. He's written a book called Unleashing Peace, Experiencing God's Shalom in Your Pursuit of Happiness. That's all coming up next. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.